Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Whether you work for government or industry, we're here to help you understand a little more about how the other side thinks. This episode is brought to you by IB Supply. IBSupply.com is your one-stop source for timely delivery of best value products. As a preferred source of supply and an award-winning AbilityOne provider, IBSupply.com offers access to thousands of products with compliance filters for hassle-free procurement. With free shipping and next-day delivery options, IBSupply.com's quality service is unmatched. Shop IBSupply.com today. We're continuing our interview series with this episode. Kevin talked to Matt Jeffrey, a former contracting officer who's now a contracts manager for Ball Aerospace. Matt shares his personal what I wish I had known back in the day that would help make things easier for both government and industry. Let's get started with this excellent discussion. How did you get here? How did you become a CEO? And you know, just what's your basic background and how you got into this crazy career field? So, uh, again, um, contract manager currently at Ball Aerospace, but I've been in this career field for about 12 years now. Um, it all began at my alma mater, Oklahoma State University, going through their career services department, interviewing for something called a contract negotiator, read through the description, had no idea what I was reading, what I was walking into. And I think <laughs> a lot of other people that can't come into this career field can empathize a little bit with, you know, taking that first job in contract manager in contract management and not really knowing what what they're walking into. So interviewed for that position, I must have said a few things right, got hired at Tinker Air Force Base as a GS-7 contract specialist in the Copper Cap program. It's been a few years at Tinker Air Force Base at the Air Logistics Center there, went to Special Operations Command where met and worked with Kevin for a couple years, and Back then the went to Space and Missile Systems Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico, relocated to AFRL still in Albuquerque, had a stint at Department of Energy before arriving here at Ball Aerospace in Boulder, Colorado. So a 12-year stint, um, made quite a few rotations in that period, had a lot of great experiences as a contracting officer and now as a contract manager. So, okay, so by the way, AFRL is Air Force Research Laboratory, and so that's the research side. So, So you did operational stuff at Tinker, and then you you did some operational stuff at, at SOCOM. I think you also did some R&D there, if I remember correctly. And mm-hmm. then you had research and development stuff at AFRL and then Department of Energy. So did you touch like a whole bunch of different types of contracts in that time? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I will. That, that's one of the things I'm most proud of in my career field is just, just the breadth of experience that, that I've been able to uh, to be able to take in over the last 12 years. I mean, seeing, like you said, operational work, you know, working with um, spacecraft, spare parts for engines, Have I've had two stints in the construction area, so we got to see cradle-to-grave contracting, um, all the way from RFP to contract closeout, where there was no DCMA involved to assist, got to do R&D work at, at um, Special Operations Command, uh, obviously some... R&D work at AFRL. Can't talk too much about that because that's in the classified world, but obviously another great experience being able to work um, in a skiff 
and you know get to get to see that side of the procurement process and how those programs are handled differently than unclassified programs and then you know where i'm at right now ball aerospace seeing some really cutting edge uh, r&d work and uh, space technologies work so what's your what's your favorite type of contracts to do is it the cost type ones that that we hope that it's going to develop something or is it the ones that okay we know we're going to buy you just got to manage our way through it and deliver it <laughs> well, I guess I guess I've had good experience using or I've had good experience working in both contract types. I think as long as I don't really have a preference per se, I would say as long as the contract type matches appropriately matches the requirement that's being procured. Uh, most of my career I've worked with cost reimbursement, primarily CPFF contract types. Uh, so that kind of you know, identifies some of my experiences in my career that a lot of it has been R&D type work that warrants a CPFF contract type. But also, you know, there can be some great interesting projects that are that are firm fixed price. And, uh, you know, and I think that there's a, you know, a, it's, it's incumbent upon uh, companies like Ball Aerospace or any other uh, small services firm or large defense firm that they be able to adapt to to the government's requirements, and and it's a discussion point to decide what the proper contract type is. But I'd say as long as it's a it's a it's a fair match for the requirements, I think uh, I, I don't really have a preference that I can uh, I, I can work and be be uh, successful in, e- in either area. Well, do do you have any? <laughs> you have, I, I laugh because I've got plenty that pop in my head. <laughs> One that I picked the wrong contract type. You have any any stories where you? This is how you learned that, oh, that's not the right contract type for this. <laughs> well, so during my experience at Department of Energy, actually, of all things, you think energy, it's got to be like R&D, cutting edge type work. Of all things, I worked in construction. So regardless of, you know, the, the base that you may be at or the Army post, you know, there's always there's always operational contracting happening with services, construction, commodities and so forth. So and, and I was so thankful that I found myself in that world. But most of that work, as you would imagine, with construction is firm fixed price. And, but still, even in, even though that contract type is being levied on the contractors, and I was the one doing the levying because I was the contracting officer pushing this FFP solicitation on, on a contract. And, and in the construction world, for those that are listening that have been worked in construction, you'll know that a lot of the awards are directed to 8As. A lot of uh, available contractors that have, have the 8A designation and, you know, ability to go sole source and so forth to those 8A contractors. And sometimes the work can still be very, very challenging and very complex. And we'll see estimates where the 8A firm that we coordinated with the small business to go with, and it was approved that they had very little experience in this type of construction work. Case in point, and one of the more interesting projects I ever worked on was a demolition project. And this contractor we worked with was a fantastic contractor, had great past performance, uh, all very responsive, typically you know on cost. Um, they did everything right. and But this was work that they didn't have a lot of experience in. So I knew that they were just giving us their their best guess, their best ballpark. But, you know, there was there was risk there, and we negotiated and uh, arrived at, at the time, 
fair and reasonable price. But at the end of the day, they were really struggling to complete this this project because there was very few demolition projects that had happened on that base up to that point. And this contractor that we were working with had very little experience. So they were taking on a huge risk at the time. Of course, you know, it was my job to enforce that contract type and ensure that they continue to perform. And they, at the end of the day, they did sign up to perform under a fixed price arrangement. But it, it was tough to, to witness because, you know, at the end of the day, while I don't think I could have been successful getting a different contract type cleared through my management, at the end of the day, I was like, maybe this should have been a cost reimbursement type contract because, because of the unique nuances behind it. Yeah, and, and I think there have been a few stories that uh, we've all had where the particularly the ones that you could do it as firm fixed price, and, and, and in some cases the regulations say that you should do it, as, and you must do it as firm fixed price, but in the back of your mind going, okay, I've been doing this long enough that I see some indicators here. <laughs> That's right. a problem with this strategy. <laughs> so what do you wish you knew when you were a contracting officer? Is there anything that pops in your head that you're like, wow, I know this now, but I wish I knew it when? Uh, so th- this is going to be a moment of humility for me. I wish I knew the real definition of an acquisition team when I was, especially when I was a young CEO. I still remember receiving my first contracting officer warrant at Space and Missile Systems Center. Very proud day, you know, worked quite a few years to get up to that point. I let it go to my head a little bit. And I used that, unfortunately, as, as a tool to... Um, I guess push contractors sometimes beyond the limit of what they should have been pushed. Um, I, I still have vivid memories of just just being too too rough on certain contractors that as as I look back today, they were trying to do the best job that they could. They ran into some obstacles, and I didn't want to hear any of it as a young contracting officer. I was like, "This is what you were hired to do. Figure it out." I don't want to hear any more. I don't want to receive any more phone calls complaining about these challenges and so forth. I need you guys to be resourceful and figure this out. This is your job. If you can't do the job, then get out of the way. So I still believe part of that. I just wish I would have been a little bit more situational in the treatment of certain contractors in certain situations. Is there a is there a specific story that you can? Uh... And by the way, I'm, I'm going to have a count. I'm going to have a similar story. So you're not the only one going open kimono. But you know, for the contracting officers listening to this, I mean, yeah, I mean, what you're describing is this: you, you don't know what you don't know. And right. I'm not just throwing you under the bus here. I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I was on a uh, a golf outing of all things. Like it was a charity golf outing thing. Which, by the way, as a government employee, don't freak out. I mean, I had to pay for. I had to pay the fifty bucks out of my own pocket. But it was a charity <laughs> thing that we're doing. And it's like a Friday afternoon. We're doing this golf outing thing. And the contractor calls my cell phone. And I'm a little bit morally offended that, you know, you'd call my cell phone, but, you know, I gave it to him. So, okay, fine. Right. And it was a travel expense that I had authorized to say, I need you to go to this location and take care of this. Well, the travel expense wasn't covered in the contract, not in that particular location. And so their contracts manager, looking back, they were in the right but here I am, this you know freshly shiny contracting officer, and I'm like, you know, how dare you, you know, challenge my authority to tell you to go do something? And what looking back, no, it ended up working out. I talked to him the next day, and you know, and, but I was I was very defensive to the idea. I didn't just do it. And I think one of the things that we we, talk, we call it Hanlon's razor, the idea of you know don't attribute to malice, which is by, which actually is easily explained by lack of knowledge. 
And in this case, I was the one who was, you know, you're just asking for more money. You just, you know, you're taking advantage of the fact it's Friday afternoon and I'm busy and, and you're trying to just get me to agree something over the phone so you can go do it. That wasn't the case at all, but that I was, I was too, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say necessarily full of myself, but there's so many stories of contractors taking advantage, but it's stuff that makes the news. That 1% where the, where the contracting, contracting officer gets, gets in trouble because the contractor did evil things that they didn't know about, right? And so that's the 1% that's going through your head whenever somebody says, well, I need you to do this so that I can afford to do this. And so do you have similar stories or am I the only one that's done that? <laughs> no, I think any uh, contracting officer or contract manager that's been in this career field for any length of time you know, has stories and probably some stories that they're not exactly proud of. But it's, I think it's all part of the learning process in this career field. Going back to my example at Space and Missile Systems Center, one of my contracts was to manage the launch facilities. The spaceports is what they call them. Uh, we had multiple locations throughout the nation, depending on the type of orbit that we wanted to launch into. That's how we identified what spaceport we wanted to launch from. And during my two-year time at the Space and Missile Systems Center, we had multiple Minotaur four launches. And there was this one spaceport that's up in Alaska, and it, it was, we needed to get to that orbit a couple times for a couple different launches. So there was a lot of focus on that spaceport. They had a very unique overhead rate. It wasn't just your traditional like manufacturing overhead, GNA, uh, cost of money, and so forth that you typically see that's easily recognizable by DCA and audits. They had a very unique overhead that was essentially attributed to utilization of that facility and essentially maintaining that facility on SMC's behalf. Although, as you know, launches are fairly infrequent at these spaceports. So, you know, we're paying for upkeep for this facility for a long period of time where it's not actually being utilized. It's just sitting there, but it obviously has to stay up to a certain standard for whenever it is time to launch that that facility, you know, has the green light and it's good to go. And so it really wasn't a problem that they were maintaining it. It was the unique overhead rate that they were using that DCA rejected. And we were having a hard time in our contracting shop justifying that cost. You know, how are we going to write this up in, a, in our P&M? How are we going to justify it as fair and reasonable? You know, all these, all these challenges. And, you know, looking back, like I said, instead of dealing with the challenges and, you know, finding a more constructive way, it just ticked me off. And, you know, I just essentially told them to get rid of that overhead rate because it's, it's, it's not recognized by DCAA and we were pretty much interpreting it as unallowable. But it was a very real overhead rate that needed to be applied. It's just it was a cost driver. It was something that was unfamiliar. So we all just kind of freaked out and we wanted to deny it. <laughs> At the end of the day, we did finally come together, find resolution. But in the moment, um, wish I would have addressed it a little differently. Gotcha. And, and, and I mean, honestly, what I love about this, particularly as a contracting officer about this career field, is you have lots of opportunities to learn. And so the industry side of that is that assume when a contracting officer is frustrating you, they're having a learning experience. <laughs> I mean, there's the many things looking back that I'm like, oh yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that was interpreted wrong. And it wasn't because I was trying to be a, a schmuck. It's because I, I hadn't had the experience to realize that it was going to play out the way it was. I hadn't played chess long enough to know that was going to happen when you move, you know, you move the rook to this spot. A lot of contracts are like that. And that's what makes it fun. You never, <laughs> you never get tired of learning. Is there anything <laughs> else as a contracting officer that, uh, that you wish you knew? 
I wish I would have had a better understanding of the balance between compliance and general business. So let me elaborate a little bit more on that is during my time as a contracting officer, not so much my final two years of being a contracting officer, but kind of in the early days again, I was leaning so heavily on compliance, checking all the boxes. Are all the rules being filed? Is Do I have the prettiest, most robust contract file in the division? So in the moment, of course, I could survive an audit like nothing else. I mean, I was, yeah, it, was, it was great, but I was so focused on building a robust file that I sometimes would forget about what, what just makes business sense in this scenario, as opposed to trying to dig through, you know, oh gosh, well, we're in the negotiations. The answer has got to be in FAR part 15. It, it's just got to be in there if it, I just dig hard enough. And as you know, a lot of the answers are not in the parts of the FAR. And you actually have to just use your brain and your experience to to come to a reasonable solution for all the parties that are involved. And I think that I was too reliant on compliance and not reliant enough on just general business skills and what makes what makes sense in that situation to to govern the decision. And then, you know, and even if I just would have gone off general business sense, I think as long as there's fairness and equity being applied in those decisions, I believe most of the time you're going to you're going to be okay. Now, of course, there's certain, you know, statutory requirements and so forth that we have to comply. We don't have a choice in the matter. Like if it's uh, it's no longer Tina, I suppose, truthful cost and pricing data, comply, we have to you know, be compliant with that. We have to do that step in the process. It's part of being a federal government contracting officer and part of being a federal government contractor. But I think that there are situations where you can just lean on your general business knowledge to govern the decision. Yeah, it's a, it's a great example of one of the podcasts we did. It was about, uh, you know, what is a contracting officer and talked about FAR Part 1, where it's like 1.6, I think, where it talks about the, the balance between knowing all the regulations, but also using business judgment. And it's very easy to to go to one side or the other. And I tended to, honestly, I tended to go more business judgment than I was, than I should have later in my career. But in the early, in same thing, early in my career, I was too far to the, to the regulatory side. And mm-hmm. so it, it is balancing both of those. And I think that, uh, yeah, I think a, the, a great way to say that is what you're saying about the idea of just what's, what's equitable for everybody. Don't look for the FAR to tell you, this is how you structure your agreement, look to FAR part one and say, look, it says to use my business judgment based on the facts that I have right now. And then mm-hmm. I like to put something that because five years from now, somebody will look back and go, you did it wrong. It's like, well, I didn't have those facts. <laughs> the, <laughs> world was, the world was different five years ago. And that's, uh, that's something I, I learned to put into my, my first negotiation memorandums later is based on the facts I have now, here's right. what I think is the best decision. And yeah. that, that mindset helps liberate a lot of people from, from the fear of being, you know, backhanded two years from now for doing something that you know, doesn't make sense anymore, but that, it's, right. that's how you learn. So, I guess the one final point I'd like to make on things that I wish I knew when I was a CEO is relationships will, will save the day so many times. I mean, you'll have the, especially when you're dealing with con, complex requirements, um, things are going to go wrong. There's going to be challenges that have to be addressed. And I believe as long as you have trust 
and a good working relationship, and it doesn't matter which side of the fence you sit on. It doesn't matter whether you're a contract manager in industry or a contracting officer working for the federal government. As long as you have put forth the time and the effort to build a good working relationship, 95% of the time you can work through any issue. Of course, there's going to be those outliers that are just, you know, that you'll have to, you know, take extraordinary circuit or extraordinary measures to resolve. But I think most of the time it can be resolved through good communication and trust and to not lean on. And this goes back to communication. Don't lean on email so much. I understand there's a time and a place where things need to be documented, but if a call can be made, make it. Don't send the email instead, especially I think this is vitally important up front. Whenever you first assume a contract, when you're working with new counterparts to build that relationship, pick up the phone. If there's travel dollars, make that trip to go see that person, meet them, meet them face to face, go out to lunch with them, learn about their families, learn about them as human beings. I think it, it, it just it, it will pay so much dividends in the in the future by building that relationship up front, as opposed to keeping it very thin and very fabricated where you only speak, in quotes here, speak a couple months, or I'm sorry, every other month, and that communication is through email. You'll never build a strong relationship and you'll never build trust in that relationship. So be very deliberate on the form of communication that you choose to embrace. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point, especially for uh, post-award. And one of the things we talk about in uh, government acquisitions, the 80-20 rule. And I think what happens is people think the 80-20, which you know, it's 80% process, 20% relationship. And that's mostly true during the acquisition time zones before the contract is awarded. But once you get to contract admin, and, and relationships still matter. I mean, they may be 20%, maybe 30%. They still matter. But once you get to the contract admin side, a relationship will help, even if you drop the ball here and there, will help you understand you know, what you're doing wrong. You may have the contract for five years. It took six months to award it, but you have the contract for five years. So by comparison, you're spending a lot more time dealing with each other in that relationship. And so that really validates your point of once you have the contract, don't live by email. <laughs> you know, don't, don't live by the, the monthly meeting. And it's, it's funny looking back, I, I, I totally did that. <laughs> There's so many contracts that I, I, for whatever excuse I had, I... I just, I didn't interact with people as much. And a lot of times it was because they were in different states or whatever. But uh, the ones looking back, like when the Gulfstream uh, fives that we bought, I went down there every month and saw them. And we had the contract management was better because I physically saw these people every month. We would physically be in the same building. And that's not cheap. That's the other part of it. And you can't always do that. Uh, We happen to have, like you say, the travel dollars to do it. But that's a really awesome point. So, so what's the, the, is there a big challenge that you see going forward for, for contract managers for, for this profession in general? I mean, you, you've seen it, you've been on both sides, you've done lots of cool stuff on both sides now. And is there a, a theme, like, you know, we talk about the idea of there are things that both sides deal with and the contracting officer on the, on the government side and the contract specialist or contract manager on the industry side, there are a lot of things that they do that are the same. And there are very few of them that are, that are really different, but a lot of it's the same kind of stuff. So do you see challenges that are going to come up that affect, or opportunities for that matter, that affect both sides? I'm so glad that you framed it that way, Kevin. Um, I think it's in a tremendous challenge right now for government contracting shops as well as ind- industry contracting shops to differentiate themselves. 
to create a unique identity. And I think while it's challenging to create that unique identity, so so you don't look so DOE doesn't look exactly like the Air Force, the Air Force doesn't look exactly like the Navy. While there are shared rules and regulations that we all adopt, I think it's paramount that these organizations find a way to separate themselves from the competition, primarily for retention of talent. Um, human capital still to this day is the most important resource, and it's, it will continue to be the most important resource for any organization. So for organizations to, to differentiate themselves, because there are so many different places where you can be a contracting officer, where you can be a contract manager, and typically whenever you bring in a new employee, more than likely it's going to take them about a year to fully understand, maybe even longer than a year, to fully adopt and understand the practices of that individual organization. And you don't want to lose them shortly after you bring them up to speed. And I think a way to do that is to identify, you know, maybe you have just, I mean, I think this is something that Ball Aerospace has going for them, is they have really cool missions, just really cool stuff that you want to you brag about. You want to go, you know, have a beer after work and tell people about the missions. I want to tell people that we just took pictures of Pluto. I mean, of course, I'm a contractor. I, I wasn't smart enough to build that camera, but I get to work <laughs> with other people who were smart enough to build that camera. And that's really cool stuff. But I think that you know, certain organizations don't have that, that, that sexy workload that they can really advocate and push forward. I think you need to somehow identify what makes my organization very attractive and how will we market that to talent so that we can get the best and the brightest people here and then keep them. So I think it's it's a huge challenge for the contract management career field as a whole, industry, government as well, to, to differentiate and separate themselves from the competition. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. I got to say, I really love these interviews. Don't forget, most of our topics are listener-driven. Send me your ideas at paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. Don't forget... You can sign up for free webinars at skywaywebinar.com every Friday. Thanks for joining us.